Chapter twenty three of Survivors of the Chancellor by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. An attempt at mutiny. December second and third. For four hours we have succeeded in keeping the water in the hold to one level. Now, however, it is very evident that the time cannot be far distant when the pumps will be quite unequal to their task. Yesterday, Curtis, who does not allow himself a minute's rest, made a personal inspection of the hold. I, with the boatswain and carpenter, accompanied him. After dislodging some of the bales of cotton, we could hear a splashing, a rather gurgling sound. But whether the water was entering at the original aperture, or whether it found its way in through a general dislocation of the seams, we were unable to discover. But whichever might be the case, Curtis determined to try a plan which, by cutting off communication between the interior and exterior of the vessel, might, if only for a few hours, render her hull more watertight. For this purpose he had some strong, well-tarred sails drawn upward by ropes from below the keel as high as the previous leaking place, and then fastened closely and securely to the side of the hull. The scheme was dubious, and the operation difficult, but for a time it was effectual, and at the close of the day the level of the water had actually been reduced by several inches. The diminution was small enough, but the consciousness that more water was escaping through the scupper holes than was finding its way into the hold gave us fresh courage to persevere with our work. The night was dark, but the captain carried all the sail he could, eager to take every possible advantage of the wind, which was freshening considerably. If he could have sighted the ship, he would have made signals of distress, and would not have hesitated to transfer the passengers, and even have allowed the crew to follow, if they were ready to forsake him. For himself, his mind was made up. He should remain on board the Chancellor until she foundered beneath his feet. No sail, however, hove in sight. Consequently, escape by such means was out of our power. During the night, the canvas covering yielded to the pressure of the water, and this morning, after taking the sounding, the boatswain could not suppress an oath when he announced six feet of water in the hold. The ship then was filling once again, and already had sunk considerably below her previous water line. With aching arms and bleeding hands, we worked harder than ever at the pumps, and Curtis made those who were not pumping form a line and pass buckets with all the speed they can from hand to hand. But all in vain. At half-past eight, more water was reported in the hold, and some of the sailors, overcome by despair, refused to work one minute longer. The first to abandon his post was Owen, a man whom I have mentioned before as exhibiting something of a mutinous spirit. He is about forty years of age, and altogether unprepossessing in appearance, his face is bare, with the exception of a reddish beard which terminates in a point. His forehead is furrowed with sinister-looking wrinkles, his lips curl inward, and his ears protrude, while his bleared and bloodshot eyes are encircled with thick red rings. Among the five or six other men who had struck work I noticed Jinkstrop, the cook, who had evidently shared all Owen's ill feelings. Twice did Curtis order the man back to the pumps, and twice did Owen, acting as spokesman for the rest, refuse and when Curtis made a step forward as though to approach him, he said savagely, I advise you not to touch me, and walked away to the forecastle. Curtis descended to his cabin and almost immediately returned with a loaded revolver in his hand. For a moment, Owen surveyed the cabin with a frown of defiance, but at a sign from Jinkstrop, he seemed to recollect himself, and, with the remainder of the men, he returned to his work. End of chapter 23